3: Uh, Wait, you're listening. Okay. Alright. Okay. You're listening Listening.
4: to Radio Lab. Lab.
5: Radio
1: Lab from (laughs) WNYC. See? (laughs) Whose pad is this?
6: Oh, I think that's mine.
1: Oh my gosh, Bethel, your handwriting is awful. Your handwriting is not awful. It's actually um very elegant. Is it legible? Not so much. But (laughs) but (laughs) elegant. Jet here. This is Radio Lab. So not too long ago, uh, Robert and our producer Bethel Hopte has a nice lean to it. Pulled me into the studio to walk me through this story that they've been working on together for quite some time. Everybody here's everybody. Yes. Yeah. Here we are. All right. So shall we start this? Yes. So what are we doing? You guys are just going to tell me the story, or should I think I'd rather tell you a riddle. Okay. Um, once upon a time,
5: birds evolved. They evolved from dinosaurs. So there was originally scaly things, and the scales turned into feathers, and the feathery things began to fly, and we call those things birds. Mm-hmm. But they have a they, I just I'm going to just ask this to you out of the blue, because it's a basic appendage. How many birds have <clears throat> penises? Oh, okay. And, and by the way, before you answer, there are like ten to twenty thousand different kinds of birds, but in by modern times. So again, how many of those species
1: have penises? How, what percentage of uh, currently all existing the p- birds, modern bird species have the Male The male's Of yeah. question, yeah, with penises as we would identify, yeah, like, like little okay, things that right. hang out, no, yeah. We don't have to dog, yeah, oh, okay,
7: yeah, 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 yeah. Those yeah, things, yeah, I don't know. This, this is, is making so you so awkward,
1: <laughs>
5: you know.
6: I'm making this draft, I was I was saying the word penis like so many times. <laughs> At one point,
5: she wrote on the page, Do you know how many times we said penises? And I've read, like, 27 in four minutes,
1: <laughs> okay. Yes, okay, so how many birds have penises? Well, uh. I have absolutely no frame of reference to answer this question. I don't know. I mean, l- I'm going to throw out a number, 40%. No. No, 70%. Let's say 70. No. Uh, pff, 30. Lower. <laughs> T- 10? Lower. Wow. 5? Lower.
5: 1?
4: 3. 3? Three? 3%. Yeah, 97% of uh. birds don't have penises. Wow. Yeah. So we learned this little fact from a
6: scientist named Patty Brennan.
4: The thing that's so weird about birds is precisely the fact that they they lost the penis. Well, you just said, you just used an interesting verb. So the, you
5: say the birds lost the penises. So does that mean that earlier editions of birds did have
4: them? That's right, yeah. So penises are widespread trait of all um, uh, vertebrates, right, except for, you know, some amphibians. And fish, and according to Patty, if you go back two hundred million years or so, birds were like all those
5: other creatures.
6: Yeah, like basically a hundred percent of them had penises. Exactly right.
5: But over time, in the vast, vast majority of birds, the penis was then lost. Now. The, oh, the, why would that be? Well, that's the question.
4: How do you lose a penis? Like, it, <laughs> it seems like a pretty handy thing to have when you want to put your sperm close to female eggs.
1: So the 97% of birds that don't have a penis now, what do they have? They have a, Well, they have a, a kind
5: of hole. Uh, both birds, the male and the females, have these holes and they sort of open up and then they line
4: them up. Yeah, it, it's called a cloaca. Oh, they have a cloaca. They have this cloaca and they just briefly touch their cloaca when they're mating and that's it. That's it.
5: And it works just fine. But if you're thinking about the engineering, what appendage is going to work better? for you to make uh, babies, penis is the
6: one. Because it gets your sperm closer to female eggs. Um. So for all of these penises to just vanish, like she says that evolutionarily, that just doesn't make any sense.
4: Like, why would you lose a thing that's so useful? So for there to be selection for the penis to to go away, um, there's got to be a very important reason. What's the reason? Well, there's a few possibilities. Number one? People have speculated, for example, that they might have been sexually transmitted diseases. You're putting this penis way deep into the female, and then you're pulling your penis back into your cloaca. Like, there could be potentially uh, a very easy exchange of, of sexually transmitted diseases.
6: Because you're, like, digging the germs deeper, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, even though the penis has its advantages, obviously... Maybe it slowly went away because the birds that had the penises just kept getting these infections. That could be. But so far, nobody's
4: found a link between penises and STDs. So then the other possibility that's really intriguing, actually, is that maybe it's because penises are heavy. And birds started flying. And getting rid of the penis would have been an easy thing for lowering your body weight.
5: Maybe they lost them so they could fly further.
4: But I don't believe that. I I mean, I think that's unlikely to have been a strong enough selection. Because ducks, for example, are among the most uh, long-distance migrants. And uh, they still have penises. They're in the 3%. And sometimes they have penises that are bigger than their own bodies so (laughs) they do um, (laughs) oh my god (laughs) they
8: do yes
4: (laughs) you mean you watch a penis go by with wings kind of (laughs) (laughs) pretty much oh my god yeah (laughs) so i think the record is a male that had a 43 centimeter long penis and this is a male that was only about 40 centimeters long himself
5: so apparently you can have a pretty large penis and fly just fine but oddly enough the ducks are also sort of a key to a third theory for the disappearance of the penis.
4: Oh yeah, so I was going to say my favorite um, is is um, this idea that actually it had to do with female choice against males that controlled reproduction. To explain, Patty actually thinks that the
6: original bird penises... Back like when they had
5: penises. Yeah,
6: um, might have been a lot like the modern day duck penis,
4: which is essentially a weapon. And so, one of the things that we learned when we were studying the ducks is that um, the males have evolved this erection mechanism that is crazy. They have an explosive erection mechanism. What that means is that the male actually averts his penis and ejaculates in a third of a second.
5: Basically, a a, a pistol penis? Like exactly. a
4: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It just goes po-choing, Yes. Wow. What what that does, though, is that it allows these males to forcefully inseminate females, even when females don't want to be inseminated, right? So if this male is anywhere near a female, he's just going to go, you know, push right through. And so as you can imagine, that's not, you know, that's not something necessarily desirable for females. Oftentimes, with females will be struggling, right? They're trying to get away from these males that are trying to forcibly copulate.
6: So Patty thinks that what might have happened here is that female birds trying to get away from males with large penises and these really violent ways of approaching reproduction began systematically choosing gentler and smaller males with smaller penises.
4: Right, so so if females start selecting males that are less uh, violent, less sexually violent, that that might um, lead to the disappearance of the penis.
5: What I think you just said is over time, because the ladies were the ladies were discomforted the gentlemen changed and lost their penis
1: says
4: yeah you got it
1: she's saying that the females essentially castrated the males well this is a slower process than that <laughs> <laughs> i mean over time over time castration over time yeah yes i suppose
5: <laughs> now what may, <laughs> what makes <laughs> you what what evidence is there for such a thing
4: so none, I mean, none in, in a way, um, because we're talking about penises, which are soft tissue, and they don't fossilize. So even if we went back into the fossil record, it would be really hard to fi- find evidence of what was happening. Um, so that's the part that is difficult. You know, it's kind of like a, a wonderful story that um, that I think makes a lot of sense, given what we know about the way these penises work now. But we can only speculate.
1: I like this idea. Good. But is this just a one-off? I mean, what about gorillas and moose who mm. fight and clash their horns? I mean, there are so many species where it just seems like the females have zero choice.
6: So I know that they there are a lot of cases like that. Of bed bugs are especially horrifying. Horrible. Just Google oh God,
1: it. I don't even talk about bed bugs. But
6: um, there are actually a lot of cases where, when the females do get to choose, they choose in ways that completely change what we see in nature.
5: And we found a group of scientists who now argue that if you look around nature, you will see females driving evolution in ways that I certainly didn't expect. And when they get into the details of how this actually works, I think it's going to flip your ideas about evolution in a way that you are totally unprepared for.
1: Do they have evidence for this idea? Because i got to say that you haven't yet convinced me of the first thing they said, uh, that females have evolved the penises away. Like I still well, have because yeah, that was a guess. Patty said, said it was, was a guessing. guess. Yeah, fair
5: enough. I will introduce you to a bird called a bowerbird, that I think will— well. It speaks for itself in these regards.
7: And it's also it's penisless.
6: <laughs> <laughs> they are
7: really cool birds. <laughs> they uh, <laughs> they have um, beautiful plumage. The satin bowerbird is a beautiful iridescent blue with a um, violet blue eyes. This is Gail Gail Patrocelli, and I'm a professor of evolution at ecol- a ecology at UC Davis. Do I wanna say that again without stuttering on and? <laughs> no, no, it's that's fine. <laughs> anyway, so the bower bird. What makes them most amazing is that they build bowers. So a bower, these things a birds spilled, is
6: basically a structure made out of sticks, which can be up to three feet tall and three it, feet
2: tall. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this
6: tiny little bird making this. You can put a huge... five-year-old
2: in it in some of these things. Wow. Yeah,
6: yeah, and it looks like a nest.
2: But it's really a kind of seduction theater. Uh, with one seat. <laughs> and, that, and, and that's for her. This is Richard Prum
5: of Yale University. He's a biologist there. And he says that on and around this bower, the male
2: will array a whole bunch of found objects.
7: Precious objects.
2: Beautiful things.
7: Parrot feathers and berries and flowers and leaves. Stuff that the bird
6: gathers from the forest. So these structures can be very ornamented and elaborate.
5: And every
2: bowerbird species
5: has its own, like,
2: style. In some species, it will all be blue everything. Blue feathers, blue flowers, and and then, of course, blue trash, like drinking straws (laughs) And, and bottle caps.
6: In the male bowerbird, basically dedicates his whole life learning how to build these structures.
7: Like, take the satin bowerbird. They take seven years before they reach sexual maturity. And during that period of time, they look just like females. And they'll often fly around the valley and get courted by adult males. So they play the role of the female and learn how courtship works from other males in the valley. And then when they get a little older, as teenagers, they'll start building practice bowers and they'll court each other.
5: And eventually, once a bowerbird figures out how to make a really good structure... A female has arrived.
7: Females show up. And so they'll fly down to the bower and they'll often check out the bower itself. Is it symmetrical? Is it well-built?
5: She seems interested. And if she likes what she sees, she'll enter the bower.
6: Now, this is where things get interesting because the bower has a very particular and purposeful architecture.
2: So uh, w- one of the classic bower designs is called an avenue bower. So it's it's two parallel walls Uh, of sticks, uh, that that are close to one another, and the female sits between them.
7: There are different variations on this basic design, but... In all cases, the female is in a protected position. There's always some kind of barrier or wall between her and the male. So, if the male wants to try to force himself on her for whatever reason, he has to run around the back and she can just fly away out the front.
1: Even
5: as he's trying to win her attention completely, he's built a building that
2: keeps her at a distance? Absolutely. The bower is like insurance against date rape for the female. It allows the female to observe him at an intimate, close distance for as long as she likes while still maintaining her freedom of choice.
6: So, the female, if she likes the bower, she'll settle into this protected space where she can back out whenever she likes.
7: And then...
2: Time to begin the show.
7: So he'll start out with his own... uh, His own displays. Many of them make very loud, uh, electronical sounds. Buzzing and whirring sounds.
2: And they they do imitations of kookaburra, you know.
6: Sometimes they imitate... Cockatoos.
7: Then, along with singing... They dance. They puff up and they run vigorously back and forth right in front of the female. And she's standing between the walls of the bower. So the female watches all of this from her safe spot for as long as
6: she likes. And she can decide if she would like to mate with this guy or... No, not good enough. Up and fly away all of a sudden. For
5: the female, the moment has gone. Now, what's particularly interesting here is that Gail has done studies that show when the males pay very close attention to the female.
6: Like, when the male really watches
7: her body position, the way that she's, like, postured, that can actually signal whether she's interested or not. The males that respond the most to those signals are the most successful in mating.
5: In other words, if the male makes his move too early and too aggressively, she's gone. And that male doesn't have any babies.
6: Huh. But it also seems like the females are kind of toying with the males, like seeing what they're willing to do for them. <laughs> like, if you, if you watch a video of this, you can see uh, in one bowerbird, um, she comes in, he like uh, lifts up his wing like a cape. Uh-huh. And then just like sort of rotates his wing like this, like <laughs> it's so funny. Oh, like like
1: like a like a matador, <laughs> like, a, kind a, like of? a
6: matador, totally like a matador. And then right after that, uh, she like picks up uh, a blueberry from the ground, uh-huh. and then. She drops the blueberry and then he does the matador thing with the blueberry in his mouth.
3: Like, like he, sounds like was,
1: like he has a rose in his mouth. That's hilarious. <laughs> She's like, you know, it's all right. But this
6: is good, but like. <laughs> It'd be so
1: much better with this.
5: <laughs> so it seems to be all about her.
1: I, I I see what you mean in this case. Yeah. I the females are definitely driving driving the bus here. And when you start to really think about the implications of this, about it being all about her,
5: that can lead you to a fairly deep rethink of the very basic rules of how evolution works. Really? Mean, yeah. m- meaning meaning like, what? Well, Normally, the classical argument, and you've heard it, like the reason this male bird is so colorful, so red or whatever, the reason the peacock has these gigantic and beautiful feathers on its tail is sort of a signal that the male is sending to the female of fitness. Look at me. I am healthy to have a tail like this. I don't have parasites. I'm strong. I'd be a great mate.
6: Like survival of the fittest.
5: Right. But let me ask you, you just heard the bowerbird story. You have these females with these crazy tastes. Like this one likes blue, only blue. And this one likes iridescent shells. So it's shells, 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 shells. And this one likes green leaves, but they have to be right side up and never right, you know, upside down. Are these... Fitness signals, or is this more like art?
1: Maybe she just likes blue, or she just likes shells. Wait, you're saying that these birds have evolved based on uh, on whims and tastes? Well, Rick, and there's other scientists
2: like him say absolutely. Yes, it's about beauty. I'm really focusing in on aesthetic choices, choices that are based on what it is the animal likes.
1: I mean, I thought the whole Darwinian thought was, well, yeah, okay, there might be beauty there. But on some level, the logic behind those beautiful things is survival, survival of the fittest. This does not sound very Darwinian. Uh, well, since you dropped the name. I propose that
2: m- my view is the legitimately, authentically Darwinian view.
1: Darwin, he had an idea about beauty? Oh, yes. He he actually— You want to read the quote? Uh, did I bring it here? Yeah, I'll you think. brought it. Yeah. Okay page 397, Descent of Man. Stripes and marks and ornamental appendages have all been indirectly gained through the influence of love, jealousy, through the appreciation of the beautiful and through the exertion of a choice. Oh, interesting. So he's saying that it's love, jealousy, and beauty, and choice. Yeah, and choice. Yeah, that is definitely not what I learned when I learned about Darwin. So
2: it's over 130 years later, and I'm still pissed. He thinks there was some kind of plot to reduce Darwin's idea into
5: something smaller and eventually eliminated entirely.
2: I would like to go historical. Let's go about what Darwin said. Okay. Let's go what Wallace said, and then let's go to the 20th century and where we got so screwed up. Okay. So, Darwin
5: spent 20 years working on his theory of natural selection. He was not particularly noisy about it, because he knew it would very much disturb his wife, who was quite religious, and other people in his church. So during the 20 years while Darwin was working away at his book, this other guy comes on the scene. His name is Alfred Russell Wallace. Kind of skinny and scrappy and self-taught, 14 years younger than Charles Darwin, but Wallace also... Uh, Went around the world collecting specimens. And he also came up with a theory of natural selection.
6: Independently. What was their relationship to each other? I mean, did they were they friends? Were they collaborators? Were they? well,
2: you know, they were uh, uh, close uh, collaborators.
5: At first, they kind of both got credit for the idea. But a little
2: later... Darwin rocketed out his book into, into press when he published his On the Origin of Species, a very popular book. Darwin got the lion's share of the credit, as I think rightly so, uh, because he'd been working on the idea for literally for decades.
5: Then 20 years later, Darwin dies. Meanwhile, Wallace lived in, until the dawn of World War I. And during that time, this is Rick's argument, after Darwin died, Wallace kept saying over and over and over again,
2: That when it came to female choice... Animals uh, didn't have the sensory and cognitive capacity to make aesthetic judgments in nature. So these elaborate decorations and artistic behaviors... Could only evolve if it communicates uh, information about vigor, quality, and general fitness to survive.
6: And Rick would say that because Darwin wasn't around to argue back...
2: Wallace may have lost the, the, the battle over credit for the discovery of adaptation by natural selection, but he won the war over what evolutionary biology would become in the 20th century. We have inherited both the science and the culture, a flattened, dumbed-down, and ideologically purified version of Darwin's actual richness.
5: Whoa, those those are fighting words. Well, you see, Rick is pretty fired up about this, and he's written a book, Evolution of Beauty, where he argues that ever since Alfred Russell Wallace, scientists have been trying to squeeze everything they see in these male patterns, male dances, male songs, male plumages, into a single explanation, a dogmatic category called fitness. And that female choice, they claim, is always, always about fitness, fitness, fitness. But Rick argues, no, you know, that is, that's a stretch, There's no way to boil down all this variety into fitness.
2: I'm not saying that the emperor wears no clothes. I'm saying that the emperor is wearing a loincloth. And what I mean by that is that that humble garment covers about the same percentage of the human body as the idea of adaptive mate choice covers all the ornaments uh, of uh, sexual ornaments in the world. Oh, my
5: God. What you just said is that most or most of what you see— Vast majority. Most of what you see in the world you think is— is desire of uh, the desire between creatures expressed in in beautiful form.
2: Absolutely. And that
5: not a fitness, not that oh that she's just looking at him thinking he's strong, he's um, genetically in, uh, trustworthy. None of those.
1: Just I love him. Yeah. Yeah, so wait, he's saying most most of the time when you see the ornaments that's not fitness at all. That's beauty. Yeah, that's what he says. Most. M- yeah. He's big time on most. Well, how would you even Know that I mean, as a human, how would you ever even know the inner workings of another creature's mind to know enough to say what it is that's driving them or not? I asked this very
5: question. No, I asked this very question to ornithologist Kim Boswick.
1: Right? Isn't it impossible
5: for you, as a human being, to have any idea what a lady animal wants to see in a guy if that lady animal is a peahen, which you aren't, or? A trout, uh, which yeah. you aren't?
3: I'm
8: ready to answer this. I'm, okay. I mean, here it is. I don't know what she wants now, but I know historically she's wanted exactly what you see in those males. The peahen has wanted that big old tail. She's wanted the show. She's wanted the blue chest. She has, at some time or another in the last, I don't know how many thousands of years, she has wanted everything you see on him. From the fancy feathers to the white skin around his eye to the ear doesn't blue, the shaking— that's what she has wanted in the past. How do you know and that? Because it's there. Now, seriously.
5: Isn't, well, isn't there some it's lawyer like, in the room who can say, I "Wait am. a second, wait a second, is that it?" <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean because How it's there? How did it
8: there? get there? Well, how else did it get well, there? Well, it could have
5: gotten there by, by accident. Yes. yes.
8: Yeah. So you just happen to have this, like, fine, nano-structured, iridescent colors in your feather because, like, 42 interacting genes across five different chromosomes came together to give you iridescent blue? No. The way you get to iridescent blue, says Kim, is you start small.
6: You give your female a bunch of choices, which are the males and her block. So imagine a female bird surrounded by a bunch of males who are all just boring or gray or black or whatever. Then totally randomly, a male shows up who just happens to have a little bit of blue on him. And she notices. When the sun glints off of his black
8: plumage, there's just a little hint of blue in that black. It's kind of a glossy, shiny blue-black. And she's like, "Mm, I like that. I like that. That
6: is a little different than everybody else, and I like it. And who knows why, it could be totally random too, but for whatever reason, she decides to mate with the blue guy. Mm, I like that. And because she's passing on his genes, her sons are likely going to be a little bit blue too. Her offspring are
8: going to have those beautiful genes, and we already know that the females chose him because he was attractive, and so she's going to have attractive sons, and her daughters are going to
6: also find... Those traits attractive, and so what you get are generations and generations of females who say,
8: mm, "I like that." I like that.
6: <laughs> and then
1: off
8: it goes. You're you're creating, you're you're evolving the males to please the females, and it all
6: starts with, "I like that."
1: I, but I like that doesn't feel to me opposite of fitness. Like I like that could be a desire that is driven by instinct. I mean, couldn't like a Wallace person walk in and be like. Yeah, she likes that because she was designed to like that. She's not thinking about the, the the why there. She's just having a desire, but behind that desire is maybe a drive to get her to the male that is the fittest. Like, and I mm. and I fr- frankly, it could be the same with us too, with people. Like, I, the, 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 what we find sexy might have. A a deep logic to it. Yeah, I I see that. Maybe in the end it's about fitness. Okay, that's a perfectly reasonable objection. Thank you. uh,
5: But what if I told you about an animal who has a fierce desire for beauty, and this particular desire for beauty is so strong that fitness is out of the picture? It's another bird. It's another bird.
6: Fixed fries, I bird? know. <laughs> Don't hate them because they're beautiful, Dad. Jeez. You'll just We'll just take a break. We'll take a break, and afterward, we'll, we'll come back with a third bird. Hi,
8: this is Sarah calling from Scarcell, New York. Radio Lab was supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. <laughs>
0: Radio Lab is supported by Zbiotics. If you've been looking for some help, waking up refreshed after a fun night out, Zbiotics' pre-alcohol probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is a genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to help tackle rough mornings after drinking. This probiotic is the first drink of the night for a better tomorrow, as it works to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to ZBiotics.com slash Radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use Radiolab at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's ZBiotics.com slash Radiolab and use the code Radiolab at checkout for 15% off. Radiolab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about hustle culture. You know, the whole rise and grind, go big or go home thing. It's a lifestyle that may not be for you, but one that your money can handle thanks to Betterment. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. How? Their automated technology optimizes your investments again and again. With Betterment, your money is taking ice baths at 5 a.m. while you get your well-deserved rest. Your money downs protein smoothies and automatically reinvests your dividends all before you head out the door. Your money is a workaholic, but you don't have to be because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed.
2: About 600,000 people go missing every year in the U.S., prompting family members to become amateur detectives. On the trail of one missing person is journalist Tanya Mosley.
0: Why do you think you hesitated when we first met and telling me the full details about your mother's disappearance.
3: It's heartbreaking. I didn't want to break your heart.
2: I'm Kai Wright. Tanya Mosley joins me next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Chad. Robert. Bethel. Radio Lab. We're back mid-battle between beauty and fitness. Bird battle. Bird battle. And we're about to introduce our third bird.
6: Yeah, you want me to go? Yeah, go ahead. All right, okay. So there's a bird out there called the club-winged mannequin. Mm. And this mannequin lives in the jungles of... I forgot where she was. Somewhere in the jungles. (laughs) (laughs) South South America. In South South America, America. America. that's true. It's probably... I think Colombia. Well, okay,
8: so the the... The clubwing manakin mannequin has a very small range in Colombia and Ecuador.
1: Is it a big bird, small no, bird? No, very little. It's
6: a, it's a tiny bird. Um, the males the males are mostly red.
1: He's got a bright red head.
6: Kind of an auburn body and uh, black and white wings with little flecks of yellow underneath them. So these are small birds, lots of color. and
2: The female can raise the babies all on her own. Well, these- so she
5: doesn't need guys except for the, f- the sexual act.
6: Right. He doesn't have to provide for her. He just has to attract her. So, to that end, this is what our little red Romeo will do. He'll sit on a branch in the Andean jungle, and he'll wait a while until a female shows up. And then when she does... He has a courtship display, and he bounces back and forth on the perch.
8: And while he's bouncing around... Every so often, he stops. Lowers his head, sticks his butt up in the air. Gets his wings all positioned, and he throws them up behind his back. And then he's, he vibrates, or just shivers. He shivers his wings together so that the only things that touch are those feathers across the back. The tips of those funny feathers are going knock, 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 knock. They knock 39 times in a row, and it takes about a third of a second
6: for those 39 knocks. Their wings vibrate so fast that they make this sound.
5: Can you make a? Can you make a the sound that that
8: he, he makes? Whoa! It's impossible for a human to make with their voice.
1: Is that seriously the sound it makes? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a truck backing up. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So he's not using his voice for that. It's just his wings. He's got this instrument.
2: Yeah, it's like, it's called stridulation. So this is a cricket-winged mannequin, would be a perfectly good name for this bird.
6: In any case, something about that sound, that specific sound, excites the female. Uh, We don't know why or when it started, but somewhere in the bird's past, a female decided she liked that sound, and so the males just started to make it. But here's the thing in order to make that sound? Yeah, they really have paid. They have have paid. Because to vibrate your wings that fast, 107 times per second, you need a rigid wing bone that you can really control. And so the club wing mannequin has done something unheard of. Their wing bones went solid.
2: It's just like a rock inside there. This is a big deal because all b- flying birds have hollow wing bones.
5: Right, so they can fly. So they yeah, like.
2: well, well, actually, even Velociraptor and T-Rex have hollow l- forelimb bones, right? So this is a feature that predates the origin of birds and the origin of flight. But this guy has given this up in order to make these uh, extraordinary wing songs. Well, doesn't that hurt your ability to fly?
8: Yes, yes. They are slow. Heavy, unable to leap buildings in a single bound.
2: It's the cost of doing business for a displaying male, right?
6: Think about that. You're in a crowded forest, lots of competitors, lots of predators trying to eat you. And you have made yourself slower, more vulnerable. And it gets worse because the mannequins have to start this process of building these hard bones really early. Like, when they're very, very tiny in the embryo.
2: Before the embryo has become either male or female.
6: So you've got an embryo that can go either way, and they're already making the big bones. And some of them are going to be male, but some of them are going to be
2: female. So by choosing males with weird wing bones because they make great songs, the female also has daughters with distorted and inferior wing bones uh, that they will never use. Both the females and
5: the males get these thick bones. So she is choosing to hear that sound and has designed him to produce that sound. But in the bargain, he comes out with heavier bones and can fly less well. And weirdly enough, she comes out with heavier bones and can fly less well. So both of them are hurting their chances to survive for the
1: chance to hear the beautiful tone that she wants to hear and that he wants Wait, to give her. what? Wait, so so she has heavy bones, too? Yeah. Yep. But she doesn't use them? Nope. Nope. Well, well.
8: Rick saw it immediately. Like I was like, oh, this is weird. The female's got the bumps on her bones, too. And he's like, oh, decadence. And I was like, what? What are you talking about, decadence? He's like, the females have it, but they don't use it. She's bearing the cost of her own choices, Decadence. And this was, like, 20 years ago.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you science people have such strange moments of ecstasy. So when he yes. said decadence, what did he mean? So everybody in the population becomes worse off because females are so choosy and choose
1: beauty.
6: So from Rick's point of view, you've got a contest going on here. Two primal drives. And on one hand, there's the desire to survive, to revel the fittest, Right. And according to that logic, the mannequin should go for the things that make him swift and powerful and agile. But on the other hand, there's a second drive to see, or in this case, to hear something they like, something beautiful. And in this case, that second drive is so strong that it's winning. It's, it's pushing the birds like away from fitness.
2: So so we've gone we've gone through the math and others have as well and there is nothing in theory nothing to prevent this kind of process from leading to extinction Oh my god right so you've just turned, wait I, wait I,
5: you've I, just turned what I normally think of as Darwinian evolution on its head like we've always been taught that what these animals are doing is they're adapting as best as they can to new and changing conditions, and they're getting better. But here you say that they are so hung up on desire and beauty that they even are willing to get
2: worse. Right. Well, you know, that's why this example is checkmate.
6: But there are biologists.
2: Eminent biologists. Hello? Hello?
5: You don't want to be sucking a lollipop or whatever you're doing here, Jerry.
6: Like Jerry Coyne of the University of Chicago.
3: I'm not, I'll be <laughs> through with it when I go on the air. <laughs>
6: Who disagree with Rick? What is it? Is it a lollipop or
3: no? It's a cough drop. Oh, a it's cough a cough drop. <laughs> okay. So
5: Jerry read Rick's book and was not not convinced by his argument.
3: Well, I think it's a good book, but it's not a great book. Um, it's good because. It has really great stories about mating behavior, which are accurate stories, as far as I know, and they're quite absorbing. promise is a good writer. Um, the reason it's not a great book is that it's tendentious. That is, it's written to promote a cause.
6: Which is, of course, that males with uh, beautiful ornaments are shaped by female sense of beauty, not
2: fitness. I think that the word fitness is a huge problem, and I don't use it anymore.
3: That You can't just say that and have it accepted by scientists unless you can test it. Okay, and that is the problem.
5: For Jerry, when it comes to the stories that we just heard, like the bowerbird or
3: the mannequin, he thinks that... More is going on here than what Richard says in his book, you know. Take the female bowerbird's preference for bowers that keep her apart from males. I mean, Richard's explanation that it allows the female more time to choose that doesn't freak her out because she feels protected. That might be the right, right explanation, hmm. but we don't know. I mean, it could be that females have an innate preference for being sheltered because it gives them a sense of security. She, like cats, cats like to be in boxes, right? Because they feel sheltered and they feel <laughs> safe. And it could be that female bowerbirds are the same way. And that will lead to exactly the same situation, but with a completely different explanation. And it's not just a random aesthetic phenomenon.
6: Or he says maybe some female bowerbirds like blue so much because blueberries are really good for them, and they're innately drawn to blue because of that.
5: Or that let go to the mannequin tail with that you know fifteen hundred hertz tone. Rick says that simply delights the
3: females but suppose that the females prefer males that have a certain frequency of wing beating because they were attuned to that frequency perhaps because it indicates something in their environment that's useful to them like the presence of a predator or they
5: just could be anything really sound of some you know mannequin friendly animal or the, a protective animal or maybe the call of their own babies the baby chicks
3: and so they just have their nervous system innately tuned to that frequency that's called sensory bias, and that's another theory of sexual selection. So they- Jerry doesn't dispute the fact that female birds like bowers. They do. Or
5: that they like a beautiful tone. They do. He just thinks that there might be a reason behind their liking, and that reason could include fitness. Correct, yeah. I mean, it's but uh, but not- are, you, are you hoping, I guess, is that the right word, hoping that there might be a parasite signal involved here? Like, you don't know. You just want to no, keep... No, I the-
3: don't know. I mean, that's yeah. my whole point. And that's why I don't think, I don't propose my own theory of sexual selection. I'm not <laughs> sure which one is does account for these mannequins with the heavy bones. We just don't know. Oh, my God. So,
5: this, this this conversation we're having keeps ending up in the same place, which is we just
3: don't know. Well, but, I, but the difference between me and Dr. Prom is I admit I don't know. <laughs>
5: <laughs> the suggestion here is that Rick is clinging to a faith in one explanation for Wallace, it was fitness,
2: for Rick, it's beauty, but it's still that
5: dogmatic insistence.
2: Uh, I just think that adaptation by natural selection is, is pretty boring. <coughs> you know, we've been, you know, 150 years in, we've, 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 we've whipped that pony quite a bit, <laughs> and we've made a whole bunch of progress. But you know what? There's this huge world of opportunity in aesthetic evolution that, uh, that has been missed in fact, Rick would
5: say, the whole point of a sense of beauty is it can be many, many different things. It is fundamental beauty is fundamentally subjective.
2: So the aesthetic model requires that we put the subjective experience, desire itself, at the center of our of our scientific explanation.
1: But can you even have a, a science that's based on subjective experience?
2: I think that that a science of subjective experience is not only a good idea, it's necessary to understand the natural world,
6: yeah, there is idiosyncrasy again, ornithologist Kim Bostwick. You can't take the individuals out of it,
5: so you don't is that science or is that just the saying okay, it really comes down to. She the carp likes what that male carp has. She the worm likes what the worm has. She the bird likes what the bird has. And then you have a trillion explanations, each one different, and depending upon the lady, a different one. So you don't, I, I, doesn't, doesn't it worry you that to call beauty and desire a category of an explanation is to not tell you very much?
8: That doesn't worry me at all. <laughs> I, uh, I doesn't worry me at all. I, you, All of us, we are individuals. We have unique histories. And life on this planet has a unique history. Science has a hard time dealing with unique instances, but biology is just in your face with it. There are individual females making choices. If that individual female had not made that choice, history might have been different and the species might look different. And that is true. That's just true.
5: In, in physics and in chemistry, there's this sort of conceit that what a scientist is supposed to do is take all this variety that you see in front of you and say, look, I can boil this down to a rule, which is always true.
1: Yeah, And usually it's one rule and transcends. Yeah, it turns so, everything.
5: So what the job of science usually is, is to find some kind of oneness inside the manyness. But now we've got nature and living things. And they have this crazy, spectacular variety. And now you've got a group of people who say, you know, maybe we shouldn't even try to explain all this with one rule or one paradigm. But, you know, I wonder if, um, if that's still science or, or is it more like history? Hmm. What if every species or every animal comes with its own story? That's interesting. So it's once upon a time, and then a once upon a time, and 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 a once upon a time. And a once upon a time.
1: This, this was reported by you, yeah. Robert Krolwich, uh, and Bethel Hoptik, and Bethel produced the story. Thank you, Bethel. Sure thing. And special
5: thanks also to Jessica Yarinsky for her work on peacocks and Michaela Gunther for her work on hyenas. We didn't mention the peacocks and the hyenas as much as we thought, but we are very grateful to both of you.
1: All right, well, we should say Goodbye. Goodbye. Well, to, yeah, to, I, to our audience. To our audience. I, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm not done with you. No, okay. Uh, I'm Jad Abumrod. I'm Robert Krolwich. Thanks for listening.
8: To play the message, press 2. Start of message. Hi, this is Kim Boswick calling from Trumansburg, New York. Radio Lab was created by Jad Abumrod and is produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design, Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bressler, Rachel Kusick, David Gebel, Bethel Habta, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kelty, Robert Krolwich, Julia Longoria, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Melissa O'Donnell, Kelly Prime, Sarah Kari, Ariana Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster, with help from Shima Oliai and Neil Danisha. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris, and I can
0: verify that Michelle Harris is also cool.
8: Thank you. Bye. End of message.
1: Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.